Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everybody. Welcome all. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, I hope you all have gotten your cure for rheumatism <laughs> via the whale. I am cultist. I still stink. <laughs> I have been inhaling putrefy- putrefying uh, gases all week. I was telling Jay, I was like, do you know that I can never say that word, right? I always put like five S's in there. And it's definitely in the episodes where I've said it, where I'm like, pulse, 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 Yes. It's one of those words I cannot say. For in one reason. of your witchy episodes, when you talk about I call they're, it they're making poultices. And it was so cute. It's like the winter solstice, the poultice. Yeah. <laughs> my winter, my winter, your winter poultice. poultice. <laughs> hey, you I know, people, people are dragging me about the fish and the mammals. Hey, we all make Listen, mistakes. It is okay? what it is. I have mild dyslexia, so I put letters in places where they don't fucking go. It is in, what it is. In five years, when all podcasts are written by ChatGBT, this will seem like an old artifact. It's so true. Just using our dumb so pieces. True. Yeah. Speaking of old artifacts, have I got a tale to tell you all today? Wait till you hear it. Oh yeah. This is this is a rough one, guys, but it's also very inspiring and really incredible. Today I am going to be discussing the story of the tremendously brave souls aboard the La Amistad in 1839. It's it's one of the most incredible stories of enslaved people's revolting. I mean, really, of all time. And there's some mm-hmm. very, very interesting uh, enslaved revolts, but this one really stands out for a lot of reasons. Uh, it leads to what would then be called the trial of the century here in the United States. And this is also a story that should really resonate with you, Luke, as part of the story takes place in Connecticut. Quite a big chunk of the story takes place in Connecticut. That's right. In New Haven. Yeah. Yeah. My old stomping ground. Some real nutmegger pride up in here. And eventually when we get to the where to learn more section of the podcast, quite a bit of it still exists in Connecticut. There's some really nice museum stuff there on uh, the Amistad. Yeah. The Amistad is uh, wrapped up in the history of the nutmeg state. And I recall, especially when the movie came out in the 90s, it really reverberated throughout the Connecticut. Yeah, I bet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So speaking of which, I'm sure some of you have likely seen the movie Amistad. And it's so funny that... (laughs) We've been talking about these historical movies a lot recently, and they all happen to be from this exact, like, little couplet of years. Mm -hmm. I did not realize until I was doing this research that it actually was out at the same time as Titanic. (laughs) Yeah, it was like the boring three-hour movie counterpart to Titanic. Which is so funny because I always thought of it as boring when I was young. It And I rewatched it recently just for this purpose. What a beautiful, incredible, difficult, moving film. Like it, so it, much better than I'd remember. But it, I was it drags like, though. I, but I was a kid. I didn't feel like it did this time when I watched mm. it. I don't know if it's just an age thing that I'm I'm more mature now that I handled it better. But I mean, you know, it also just has, if you've never seen it, the performances alone are like gorgeous. Like unbelievably great what's his name uh jaymon hansu is jaymon hansu yeah he's so good parts matthew mcconaughey is wonderful in it i i love him so much and he's very good in this and above and beyond anthony hopkins is flawless in this Mm -hmm. movie as mr john quincy adams he's just so goddamn good 
And it's crazy. The movie actually did not even get nominated that year when Titanic won. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's such a better movie. <laughs> like, in retrospect, it really is so much better. And in the media landscape we're now in, in the political world we're now in, that movie would probably have its rightful attention given to it. I would have to agree with that. You know, the yeah. Academy would be like, oh, we have to salute this story. You know, Afro-originated peoples, oppression, enslavement. Um yeah. And yeah, I mean, that compared to the story of a Gilded Age, you know, liner that goes down <laughs> because of human greed. <laughs> Pretty much only containing white people. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. <laughs> yeah. Very different story, but not a romantic story. Not a nice story pretty much at all until the very end. So the the biggest difference to me between La Amistad and Titanic as as movies is while we harp on Titanic endlessly for a lot of bad history, the movie is actually fairly accurate uh, to a large extent, disturbingly so, especially in its brutal, brutal portrayal of the treatment of the enslaved aboard slave ships. And speaking of which, before I go any further, I think um, I just want to have this brief little conversation. This is very important. There's changing vocabulary around the discussion with slavery, and it's a big part of the museum world as well. Luke can certainly speak to this. The place that he works at talks about the history of the enslaved. So at present, there has been an increased desire for Africans who were captured and sold into slavery to be referred to as the enslaved or enslaved peoples rather than slaves. And the reasoning behind that is that to call someone a slave's uh, infers that that is perhaps their entire identity, that it takes away their their personage, if you will. Um, it's the same reason why I can't even think of a good comparison because it's it kind of stands alone in some ways. Like a cripple. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. The same way we talk about person-centered language in access and disability awareness, we would also use person-centered language when we're talking about people who were sold into, ch into chattel slavery. Yes, and, exactly. Um, and yeah, five, six years ago, this was very new. And oh my gosh, yeah. Sort of, you know, for a lot of us who weren't in working in the historic house museum field at the time, it it was it was like a lightning bolt um going yeah. through the field. And it is a big adjustment still. I'm sure a lot of you are hearing this possibly for the first time, and that's totally okay. The idea behind it is that it's this is a status that was placed upon them by their enslavers. It is not a chosen identity. And so similarly. We're moving away from terms like master and slave versus an enslaver. Um, that term obviously better describes the actions of those individuals versus terms that really give credence to the notion that enslaved peoples were property. We don't want to feed into that narrative. And again, these are still not universally accepted terms. We know that. It's sort of this unlearning process or a relearning process with when anytime there's new language being introduced. Um, and even I, in this episode uh, and future episodes, may slip in and out of the terminology. I think it's totally natural when something has been so much a part of your learning since you were a kid. You know, I've been on this planet for a few decades now. And so doing language switching can be really difficult. So bear with me if I bounce around. But, you know, learning and unlearning and tolerance and empathy are a lifelong struggle and a lifelong process. So, uh, you know, we're all just here to learn. And I hope that all of you get a lot out of this. And if this, these are not terms you've been using before, something to consider, something to research. Okay. Off the soapbox. Done. <laughs> Very good. So 
the uh, the story of La Amistad or the Amistad, if we don't want to be fancy in Spanish, it's so enduring because it is really several stories in one. It tells the story of the Atlantic slave trade and the horrors of the Middle Passage. It enlightens us in matters of international affairs in the mid-19th century, especially in terms of crimes that occur on ships in international waters. And it also tells the complex story of how the American legal system is continuing to battle over issues involving enslaved people at this time, which is ultimately really setting the stage, getting us ready for the tumultuous decades that ultimately lead to the American Civil War. So it, it, this is a pivotal moment in history when this, when this happens. And needless to say, this is an incredibly important story. But this is also a pretty long story. <laughs> Luke knows. I mean, the movie is three hours. And the movie uh, really does a good job of where I would say other historical movies that we've watched recently have their moments where like, yeah, you're adding things that don't need to be in there. They had to cut out information just to get it under three hours it is an epic. right we had to get rid of a lot of characters and combine them into facsimiles and correct yes so as a result uh i am going to do a two-parter here because the second part of this really focuses a lot on what happens once the ship is finally brought to america and that's kind of the America story is its own. So this this week, this episode, I'm going to focus more on the story of how the African individuals were brought to the Amistad and how they ultimately revolted on the ship. So let's get going because we got a lot of ground to cover. We got a lot of ocean to cover. Huh? <laughs> I see you stood there. Thank you. <laughs> so obviously... Unfortunately, slavery and the Atlantic slave trade need no introduction, but I'll simply give you this stat as we we often, you know, epic, horrible things like this are often reduced to numbers. But the numbers do help kind of help our minds at least somewhat comprehend the humongous nature of this kind of stuff. And so. This stat is that it's estimated from the 16th century to the 19th century, around 12 million Africans were kidnapped, forced onto ships, and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas in the transatlantic slave trade. Of those 12 million souls, approximately 1.5 million are believed to have perished aboard the ships that carried them. And those are devastating numbers, obviously. But with that in mind, it makes a slave revolt on one of these ships that much more phenomenal. So imagine 1839, something like this happening. It's it's incredible. And if you are someone who is an abolitionist, this is a very exciting moment. If you're someone who is holding on to slavery, and we'll talk about why you're kind of still, you have like a grip on it. This is a terrifying moment. This is every slaveholder's worst nightmare, right? Yeah, so your odds of surviving this situation based on those numbers alone, abysmally low. Not a good chance you're going to escape from ens enslavement. So I'm going to set the scene a little bit more now. By 1837, just two years before this story really begins, here in the United States, there are 13 states where slavery is illegal 
and 13 states where it is legal. So we are really split right down the middle, a house divided, if you will. But regardless of that fact, the act prohibiting the importation of slaves has been in effect since 1808. So the entire country was no longer permitted to participate in the importation of enslaved peoples. Regardless, slavery is still doing great in this country, <laughs> but it's more about this Atlantic slave trade. There's an, a real consorted effort being made to kill it, to let it die out with the hopes that eventually that will then also lead to the death of slavery. Mm -hmm. But we know that that's a long journey, right? Right. Because you still have slaves who can procreate. Of course. You, know, you can have intergenerational an investment. So it's still going on. Yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of, though, the way that the wind is blowing. We know that America clings to slavery for a long time. But in Europe, uh, certainly in Great Britain, you know, sl slavery is abolished at this point. We're in and around 1837. Slavery is gone in Great Britain. They have made uh, the slave trade has been illegal for decades at this point. And the Slavery Abolition Act, which was put through in 1833, is coming into force and had a sort of a, a gradual manumission at first. But by 1837, slavery is no more. Mm -hmm. And so... To enforce these laws, these rules, the British Navy actually had ships actively patrolling the Atlantic to try to prevent slave trading operations because this was uh, they had entered into agreements with other nations throughout Europe. Because, like I said, this is the way that the wind is blowing. Now people are understanding this is no longer an acceptable practice. Mm -hmm. We have to let it die. And so. Despite these rules and regulations and efforts, we know that frankly, there will always be the illegal trading of human beings. Slavery still exists today. But at this time, there are absolutely plenty of unscrupulous individuals in the late 1830s who also didn't give a fuck. And they found ways to outmaneuver the laws. Mm -hmm. So this is the, as Luke liked to say, this is the milieu that we find ourselves in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Let's get to the actual story at hand. I just wanted to kind of set you guys up for what it's what's going on in the world in the 1830s, what's going on on the seas, and what's going on with slavery in the 1830s. So in February 1839, Portuguese slave hunters, as they were known at the time, kidnap hundreds of Africans from Mendiland, which existed in present-day Sierra Leone. One of those individuals captured was a man named Sengbe which he would eventually be known as Joseph Sinke or simply Sinke. Uh, Sinke had been working as a rice farmer when he was taken captive by tribesmen who he owed a debt to. This is a very common thing that would happen, unfortunately. Uh, Sinke, along with hundreds of others, would be taken from Mendeland to the African port of Lamboco. He was sold to Pedro Blanco, who is one of the biggest pieces of shit to ever live. <laughs> he basically ran all slavery operations in and out of this port. Just this white Spanish dude, his best life. He's got multiple uh, African wives. He's living this high life. And the reason why he's able to be so powerful there is because he had developed this working relationship essentially with the local ruler, the African king. Uh, I think it's Siaka of Galinas. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, yeah, he had cooperation, essentially, to help him capture individuals. So uh, Sinke and the 500 other Africans are imprisoned aboard the Portuguese slave ship known as the Tecora, and they begin their journey to Havana, Cuba. So let's talk about the Tecora. It was a Portuguese slave ship that existed, uh, I think, fairly early on in the 19th century. The brig of the ship was built especially for the slave trade. Although, like I had mentioned already, the slave trade is outlawed. So the fact that this ship is even being built for this purpose is bananas. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the date of its origins. If it was built like maybe right before it started to become illegal everywhere, mm -hmm. then I'd be like, all right. But if it was built in spite of that, like that's really fucked. That's just being like, yeah, 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 whatever you say, whatever you say. I mean, on the open seas in the 19th century, you could do whatever, really whatever you yeah, want. Especially international waters. Me. Yeah, very yeah exactly. And that's obviously like a huge part of this story. So, yeah, she was a fast ship that was uh, referred fast to as ship. You say she was a fast ship. She was <laughs> the word I've seen used is maneuverable <laughs> mm -hmm. in that. And she needed to be because this bitch is trying to get away from the British who are on mm -hmm. the high seas, trying to take her down and say, nah, -uh, not supposed to do that motherfuckers. So uh, yeah, she's a quick, speedy little boat. Not so little because she's able to hold an enormous amount of cargo, including human beings. So now I'm going to talk about what life aboard the Takora was like. This content, of course, is deeply disturbing. And if you need to skip through, please do. But if you've never learned about the experience inside of a slave ship, I highly encourage you to take this opportunity to learn. It's incredibly important history, as difficult as it is. Because to put it into context for you, more buddies, in terms of the content we've done so far, if the prison ships were hell, this is a fate worse than hell. I think perhaps some of you have seen some of those architectural drawings of slave ships. Perhaps you have that image in your mind. Those are very accurate. But I'm going to mention the details that I'm going to mention are actually narratives directly from survivors of the Amistad. Uh, who eventually would talk about this in court, including information provided by Sinke. So once on the Takora, captives would be stripped naked. And they were then chained into groups of five and packed tightly into the slave hold, which was a deck below the main deck. Um, so it was like the bottom was cargo, like goods and stuff, the, and middle would be the enslaved peoples, and above that would be the main deck. And it's so cramped, obviously, so that... When one person's head, when you're lying in the row, you're literally touching another person's thigh. You're laying so close to one another. It's obviously very dark in the hold of the ship, and each slave has barely four feet of space to move within. This is a long voyage. It's about 10 weeks, I believe. If nothing else happened, that is horrible. That's horrifying. But according to further testimony, uh, they are shackled around the ankles, wrists, and neck, and forced to sleep tightly together in these contorted positions with not enough headroom to even stand up straight if they wanted to. In terms of nourishment, there is almost none. The food is essentially rice on this particular ship, and many of the enslaved would actually refuse food in hopes of starving to death. 
meaning they would want they would rather choose to starve to death than continue to live on this ship. And for that crime, quote unquote, they would then be whipped and forced to eat at times to the point of vomiting. They experienced endless physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. Vermin, rats, lice, fleas were everywhere on the Takora, carrying with them every disease imaginable in these close, unventilated quarters. At some point, when they were at sea, if supplies were running low, the crew would chain upwards of 30 to 40 slaves together, attach a heavy weight to the end, and throw the weight overboard. This, of course, would drag those chained into the sea, drowning them. So these individuals are men, but predominantly women and children, which is horrible. So ultimately, endless amounts of these individuals are dying. And it's one of the one of the reasons behind, you know, as we've we've mentioned that quote from 1776 why you're cramming them in the ships why you're taking as many as possible because you know you're going to lose a certain percentage right people mm -hmm. are going to die Breakage. on this ship yeah mm -hmm. so you're kind of counting the loss into that allotment of individuals right that you take on the ship and so of course nearly a third of the slaves would die during this long voyage from the physical abuse, the disease, the starvation, and the dehydration, the youngest being the most vulnerable. So bringing a young child or a baby on this ship, obviously, you just, you know that you're giving it a death sentence, mm -hmm. essentially. So each morning, the dead would be brought up from the lower deck and tossed into the ocean. And while these stories are accounts, as I said, from court records, from directly from the mouths of the individuals who survived these ships, uh, specifically survived the Takora, from what we know of other primary sources, this is the universal experience on most slave ships. This is not unique to the Takora. Right. Right. So those that survive this horrifying leg of the journey on the Takora find themselves now in Cuba which at that time was a Spanish colony. Now, this is very important for this story. The Spanish at this time, uh, slavery had been abolished since 1811, and they had also signed a treaty with Britain to end the slave trade. So they were part of this whole European movement to get rid of this scourge once and for all. So having these ships come into Cuba, you're thinking to yourself, wait, what? <laughs> Why? So it's this whole sneaky, quote unquote, underground operation. But at the same time, you know, they are your colony. You got to know to some extent that this is going on. You can't pretend you can't turn a total blind eye as sure. if it's not happening. Right. right? For the right people got paid off. Absolutely. Without question. So we'll get back to Spain in the next episode where their behavior gets infinitely worse in this story. But for now, let's get back to uh, Cuba. So Cuba is a whole other story. Obviously, slavery is thriving there. The sugar industry is huge in Cuba. 
So while importing the enslaved into Spanish-controlled Cuba is illegal, Cuba is all about the slavery. Uh, So traders are smuggling captive Africans ashore at night in these small little boats. So that's their way of sneaking them into Cuba. They usually would land in this small inlet in Havana. And once on land, the slaves would then be placed in what they would call a slave pen, also known as a barracoon. What's interesting, though, because it is a colony of Spain, technically the second these people would set foot in Cuba, they should be legally free. Mm -hmm. But they don't know that. (laughs) Right? Right. And to ensure that no one could mess with that, and this is truly disgusting, They are classified as Cuban-born slaves. They have these fake credentials Mm. essentially made for them so that they could be separated and sold in Cuba. And a perfect loophole. And plus, it's easy to take advantage of this situation where these people don't speak the language. They Mm -hmm. have no way of communicating where they're from, who they are. And you could simply say, oh, well, yeah, they still speak like the native language of Africa, their village or whatever, because that's what their parents taught them. And Mm -hmm. they choose to communicate in that way. They just haven't learned Spanish yet. They haven't let them learn Spanish or some other bullshit excuse. Mm -hmm. Right. So terribly disgusting. So two Spanish plantation owners by the names of Jose Ruiz and Pedro Mantes bought 53 of the Africans who had survived the trip on the Tacora. Of those 53, 49er men, there's a boy and three girls. So these two men, Ruiz and Montez, they pack all of the cargo that they've gotten from Cuba and they take these individuals, these enslaved persons, on their schooner called La Amistad. And they set sail for their plantation at Puerto de Principe, Cuba. La Amistad, by the way, I believe means friendship. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that nice? Great. So. Leaving uh, Port-au-Prince steaming for America. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful good times. So. At this point on the ship, it's these two plantation owners, these 53 Africans. And there's also just really like handful of crew cap including a captain uh cabin boy etc it's there's really not much by far and away the mm-hmm. africans outnumber the other individuals on the ship mm-hmm. it goes without saying that the treatment on the amistad was of course also absolutely horrible the journey was only supposed to take a couple of days in theory because they're just going to another part of cuba uh however the storms that came about slowed the progress of considerably. And so they had only brought on board with them enough food and water for a couple of days. They weren't planning on kind of being stuck at sea for mm-hmm. any extended period of time. So immediately the captain begins rationing the food and water. And of course, who is going to get rationed first? It's going to be the Africans on the ship. Knowing that they need to ration things, being annoyed that they're still stuck on this ship, the crew take out their frustrations, their abuse on 
the Africans, and in particular, anyone who was seeking extra food or drink. Uh, a translator in America would recount a survivor's story of the voyage where he said, on board the vessel, he had not enough to eat or drink, only two potatoes and one plantain twice a day, and half a teacup of water morning and evening. He asked for more water and was refused. For stealing water, he was severely flogged. Powder, salt, and rum were poured into his wounds. So, again, cruelty for cruelty's sake, right? Mm -hmm. The food and water, at least the sailors are, you know, rationing for their own survival. Not that it's okay, but the other parts are completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, just being monsters. So, uh... It's around this fourth day. They had been, there was this cook on the ship who had been really just fucking with the Africans the whole time, mocking them, teasing them, torturing them, you know, psychologically. And he starts saying to them, and I, I assume miming to them, because again, there's a big language barrier here, that they're going to be killed and eaten once they get into port. So you can imagine the Africans don't handle that information very well. Who would, really? You know, and you've already been through so goddamn much. I'm done. I'm done. That's kind of what Sinke and the other guys start to say. Mm -hmm. So they have resolved at this point that when the right moment presents itself, we have to take this ship. We have to fight. We know that death is ultimately what is coming for us one way or the other right so we have to try and it's incredible too that they came to this together because again even the individual africans they don't speak the same language mm -hmm. these are different yeah, ethnic different groups yeah. yeah exactly so you know it's like S spanish people talking to italians like we're not the same we're not right. from the same place. I kind of vaguely understand some of the words that you're saying, maybe, and we can communicate a little bit. But for the most part, it's very difficult. And yet, I think that language is universal when mm -hmm. it's like, we got to go fuck some shit up, <laughs> right? So before dawn on, again, I've seen like varying dates. I think this stuff is a little bit hard to clock. Mm -hmm. July 1st or July 2nd. Either they broke... Or picked the locks. In the movie Amistad, it's portrayed as uh, Sinke is, he gets a nail. Mm -hmm. And with a nail, he's able to pick his lock open. And he then frees everyone else. So that very well could have actually been what happened. Mm. So all of the men are freed. And he he kind of, you know, de facto becomes the leader of this situation. And immediately they climb up on the main deck and they head straight for the cook because <laughs> fuck that guy <laughs> and they kill him first mm -hmm. uh they bludgeon him he's i believe he's asleep at the time so they bludgeon him to death in his sleep and though the other crew members are they they wake up because there's a lot going on on the ship at this point right there's no time to load guns or really prepare for this attack on them of course yes so only the captain had a moment to grab a weapon. I believe that he grabbed a club and perhaps also a dagger and actually did kill one of the Africans and seriously wound another. I think that gentleman also died of his mm -hmm. wounds. Um, 
And for that, he himself was then slashed to death. And what they had found, what the Africans had found in the ship, in the cargo, they had these big sugarcane knives. So so that is largely what they were attacking with at that point, which was amazing <laughs> that they were able to find those on the ship. Uh, I think they were just looking for whatever they could get their hands on at that point. So uh, there are two crew members that actually escaped. They managed to get their hands on a canoe and jumped in the water after it. Uh, and the cabin boy just kind of like stayed hidden back. So he Damn was right. Oh, hell Smart yeah. Boy. He's like, well, he, I believe uh, his name is Antonio. And I believe he himself uh, was enslaved. So he's like, I'm not getting involved one way Damn or the right other. Fight, boys. Nope. Nope. Not as far as he's concerned. Ruiz and, and Montez, who are the owners. I'm definitely saying that guy's name wrong, by the way. I can't remember how you pronounce it. <laughs> You know, my Spanish pronunciations are... You're forgiven. Always on point. They are... They have their weapons taken from them, so they are not able to defend themselves. And they are tied up, and it is conveyed to them that they have to bring them back to Sierra Leone. They want Mm -hmm. to go back to Africa. Now, again, huge language barriers here, of course. And so... They do understand what they want them to do. Of course, they know that they want them to take them back to Africa <laughs> and they can fake it as much as they want. But and they're threatening them. They're actively threatening them. And they also do a pretty good job of portraying this in the film Amistad. I don't know if you remember, Luke, the la- from the last time you watched it. The beginning of the movie, actually, there are no subtitles mm-hmm. unless two individuals of the same language are speaking to one another, which is very smart. Mm-hmm. Solid Spielberg stuff. <laughs> it's a great choice. And so, yeah, it was a great choice. In fact, I had forgotten that. And so when I first started watching it, Jane and I were like, oh, man, did we get the illegal copy? There was no subtitles. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, we're just stupid. So, yes, there. if you do decide to watch it after listening to this, there are, there are mostly no subtitles in the beginning. And so I think the two gentlemen also it made it very easy for them to speak to each other because mm-hmm. what they were saying to each other wouldn't be understood. And so behind, I guess in front of faces <laughs> behind their backs, they say, you know what? We're actually going to veer the ship close to the United States. And hopefully someone will get these guys. We know they love slavery there. Maybe we'll get lucky <laughs> and they'll rescue us. And so, where whereabouts is this insurrection taking place in the waters? Where are we? Do we have any idea? We are. I I honestly, I actually don't know. They are they are out to sea at this point because it continues to drift for two months. Oh my god! Yeah, because so we don't know if they were closer to what side of the Atlantic they were on. We don't know. Yeah. So First I mean, night. and and think Crap about shoot. this too. You know, you've killed the captain, who's the person who clearly has the most experience navigating the ship correct which you know it maybe was an impulsive moment of revenge sure. which yeah. i get it that's fine right but instead you have the two plantation owners guiding the ship and i don't know enough about these gentlemen to know their uh captain capabilities <laughs> right their navigational skills so i think and this is another thing that they did in the movie really well they repeatedly are looking at the stars the mm-hmm. And of course, none of the Africans have any experience sailing the seas. Yeah. So, but they do understand the placement of stars to some extent, I think. And that's at least that's how it's portrayed in the film. And so I think at most they understood the navigation on those terms. But beyond that, 
I'm sure part of it was they knew enough to drift towards the continent, <laughs> drift towards the United States. Yeah. So that they at least got them there. And so it's around the two month mark that something called a revenue cutter ship, which is a I know it's I was when I saw that written, I was like, the what, what, what now? <laughs> that is an armed customs enforcement service that is run by the U.S. Treasury at the time. Yeah. Crazy, right? Makes perfect sense, of course, because, you know, everything's coming overseas. So the ship is called the Washington and it sees the Amistad and is like, huh, <laughs> that's weird because mm -hmm. it's mostly fairly naked uh, Africans right. standing on deck. Mm -hmm. Right. And at this point, we are off Montauk Point here on Long Island. I got so close. So close. <laughs> they were so close. I know. So, yeah, suspicions immediately arise. It's a weird scene. And of course, also immediately, the Africans are like, we see more white men. We're fucking out of right. here. They Hard start jumping up. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And some of them, of course, at this point, two months at sea, drifting around, not a lot of rations, not a lot of food. Uh, I think about nine of them had also died. So yeah. of who is left, some of them immediately jump off the ship. Uh, that includes Sinke. Uh, they try to escape. Uh, some do make it to land, but they are captured on land. Others mm -hmm. are just taken from the water onto the Washington. From there, these individuals would be brought to New Haven, Connecticut, where they would be imprisoned on charges of murder and piracy. Womp. Wompity womp. So that's where I'm going to pause the story for now, because the second half is very big <laughs> it's just getting good i know i know you know we got past like the scariest the scariest bits in quotations now we just have to worry about are they going to get through this trial without right being and there's only so themselves? many only so many legal pretzels you can undo in an episode of a podcast and this is a lot of legal pretzels because what i will give you a preview is immediately we go back to what you discussed in your Titanic episode, Luke, the conversation around salvage rights comes up. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the gentlemen on the Washington say, hey, finders keepers, losers weepers, they're ours now. And then you have Spain being like, uh, 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 that's our shit. It belongs to us. And then the plantation owners are like, what the fuck? We bought them. And you're going to find out how all of these bastards get found out how all of the horrible illegal dealings come to light in cuba mm -hmm. and it gets very exciting from this point on the story is a, a legal roller coaster <laughs> it's fascinating you know because the whole thing boils down to capitalism and what is property people are property in this situation at what time does someone become a slave you know, yeah. and and especially when it's extra legal like this, um, it's very murky. And you've got companies, corporations, you know, other countries um, and this evolving understanding of what an enslaved person is or what a what a you know human as property chattel slavery is. Yeah. And that's just like it cracks the whole thing wide open in the United States in a really pretty amazing, powerful way. It is. It's really it's honestly the the first half of this story, which. 
I know this is much heavier content than we usually do. It's a it was a very serious episode, but it's it the story needs to be told with a certain level of uh, gravitas because it is so incredibly serious. It's deeply upsetting information. It's a very difficult story, but it really this next chapter is very exciting. Like mm-hmm. and and just the seeing actual justice, our justice system work. And the way it's supposed to work is a wonderful thing. So I'm very excited to share the second half of the story with you all at a later date. So hold on to your knickers. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought this topic up in terms of our interesting watery uh, theme, sub theme we've been tackling. And as we're discussing this, I am reminded of a really interesting installation that's at Governor's Island right now Mm. called American Manifest Moving Chains. Mm which is a huge artistic installation. Basically, it's this big wooden platform that you can walk under, and there are these 100-foot-long chains that are oh. rolling and moving, and they are meant to convey... I haven't seen it yet, but I've been, I want to go. I just heard about it the other day. Wow. Um, they're meant to convey... The artist is showing you like uh, the chains go in d- two directions, because the Hudson River, it goes in two different directions, as the Native peoples called it, the river that yeah. goes to both ways. Both and the ways, chains yeah. are also supposed to represent the slave ships and the chains of slavery, the bonds of slavery, the unfinished work of abolition. Yeah. Um, and I know the exhibition exhibition was on pause at Governor's Island, but I believe it is supposed to be coming back online just in time for the spring and summer. So, um, Oh, that's exciting. That yeah, and in general, if you've never been to Governor's Island, fantastic. That's Fantastic great. trip. Always great stuff going on there too. It's so one of true. I know it's one of Lukey's favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I will I will just give you a, a couple little little nuggets of uh museology for this episode, just because there's gonna be so much more to talk about next time. Uh a couple of things you can investigate, and Luke, I'm sure you know all about this. There while the Amistad is long dead, gone. Fuck that boat. Uh, The Freedom Schooner Amistad, which is a ship replica, was created in 2000 and launched out of Mystic, Connecticut. I remember that. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I believe it just left Mystic on April 24th. I don't know where it's sailing to next, but I I briefly looked at its sort of map and it hits various ports um, Mm -hmm. all over Connecticut. So if you're in and about sort of the New England area, New York, New Jersey, yeah, definitely check it out. They also have beautiful programming that they uh, devote to the history of the Amistad. And it's I think that it's no coincidence that this started in 2000, only a couple of years after the movie came out. I think it really renewed in in this story and passion for this story. So good good for the museum world for responding appropriately. <laughs> yes, it, and if you have always tries to do. <laughs> if you haven't been to Mystic Seaport, it is in amazing. General, spot. It's amazing. Oh spot. my God. Our whole watery series. <laughs> they, yeah. And they do a lot, they still they, they do a lot of shipbuilding there. They restore old ships and they, they build do. replicas of new ships. And it's they always have they have great social media, Mystic Seaport. They're one of the one of the originals in terms of living history museums, but they really their focus is shipbuilding now, which phenomenal. is phenomenal. It's really big. 
It's mm-hmm. actually like there's a lot to do there. And when we talk, when we say living history, we are, of course, are talking about individuals sort of portraying people who may have actually lived at the time or sort of creating their own character who could have lived at the time. And you'll go into a blacksmith shop. You'll actually meet someone who's supposed to be a whaler on a whaling ship. So you get to go on these actual ships, or in this case with the Amistad, a replica. Although I don't know if you can actually board uh, the Amistad at present. Don't quote me on that. Um, And it's an incredible experience. I love when you're out there sometimes and they start playing sea shanties. It's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love it there. I have, I'm obsessed with Mystic. So yes, by all means, get there if you haven't been there and you'll really just dive into the horrendous whaling history that we just lightly touched upon last week. Indeed. So yeah, that's it for now, but stay tuned. More to come. All right. Looking forward to the looking forward to the conclusion of the Amistad chapter. Thank you, Katie. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum wherever you listen to podcasts. And please remember to leave us a review. You can get in touch with us on email at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Morbid Museum. And you can become a more buddy. Support us on Patreon at a rate of $3 a month at patreon.com. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.